Our speaker this evening, John Madison, is a distinguished professor of English at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the editor of the Annotated Little Women. He received the Pulitzer Prize for Biography for Eden's Outcasts, the story of Louise May Alcott and her father, and the Anne M. Sperber Prize for the Lives of Margaret Fuller. I can't believe it's been five years since John last spoke at the Athenaeum, and we displayed some of the books Louise May Alcott checked out when she was a member. In conversation tonight with John is the person who has published all of his books, Amy Cherry, PhD, Vice President and Senior Editor at W.W. Norton. Her main areas of acquisition are history, biography, and narrative nonfiction. Among the authors and titles she has published are Pamela Nadell, award-winning uh, award America's Jewish Women, Neil Gaiman's best-selling Norse Mythology, and Yuval Taylor's notable Zora Ann Langston. Tonight, they are here to discuss John's brand new work, A Worse Place Than Hell, which the Wall Street Journal called a moving group portrait of five participants in the Civil War. Welcome, John and Amy, to the virtual Athenaeum. Well, and thank you, Victoria. It is uh, an absolute pleasure uh, to be speaking once again under the auspices of the Boston Athenaeum. It's my only regret, of course, that I can't join you in person tonight. Uh, you know very well what a fabulous institution the Athenaeum is. And I remember very fondly that time five years ago when I came to uh, uh, to, to speak. I was talking about Louisa May Alcott. And as you said, uh, you had her borrowing records uh, on display. And I was fascinated to see them. I thought, well, you know, what was she reading? Was she reading Dickens? Was she reading Bronte? Uh, and it turns out that she was reading thrillers. She really loved uh, sort of, you know, not only writing, but also reading bodice ripping stories. And I remember one title in particular, it was a book called Why Did He Not Die? Uh, which, uh, which then actually some friends of mine got me a copy of. I don't know if this shows up as I hold it up against the virtual background, but I am a proud possessor of Why Did He Not Die? Um, but uh, in any uh, event, uh, that's not why we're here tonight. Of course, we're here to talk um, and say a few words about uh, A Worse Place Than Hell. Um, and so to begin. Uh, a Worse Place Than Hell started uh, in my mind with a question. And that question was, what would it be like to understand a terrible battle, uh, not in terms of how it affected the outcome of the war, but how it changed the shape of a nation's culture? Uh, the battle at the center of my book uh, is uh, the Battle of Fredericksburg. Uh, and certainly there were other battles that were more significant uh, militarily and politically when thinks of Antietam and Gettysburg and Vicksburg. But I've come to believe that Fredericksburg, um, by a series of coincidences, had um, an outsized effect on American cultural life, in large part because of its effect on a quintet of extraordinary lives uh, that it dramatically transformed. Now, um, you know, because of Victoria's introduction, you're all aware uh, that my first book was a dual biography of uh, Louisa May Alcott, uh, who is the author of, uh, of Little Women, uh, and her father, Bronson. And Louisa uh, becomes who she is uh, as a writer, uh, as a direct result of Fredericksburg. Um, when the war started in 1861, uh, she was facing... Well, I think we could call it a kind of uncertain uh, future. Uh, she was 28. 
uh, living with her parents, scratching out a meager living, writing short stories for magazines. Um, and her early life, her life up to, almost to that point, uh, has derived much of its structure and support uh, from her three sisters, uh, who are later immortalized in Little Women. And those sisters in real life were Anna, Lizzie, and May Alcott. Well, in 1861, uh, one of those sisters is now dead, another is married, and Louisa is deeply unsure about uh, the place that, that life is holding for her. Uh, she wants to join the Union Army as a nurse, but there's a minimum age for joining the nursing corps. You had to be 30 years old. Well, Louisa turns 30 two weeks before Fredericksburg. She sends off her application immediately. And on the same day that the Battle of Fredericksburg begins, she boards a train in Boston and heads south for a Washington hospital. At the hospital, she tends to the Fredericksburg casualties and she meets uh, a critically wounded soldier uh, by the name of John Surrey, uh, who's a man of extraordinary character. Uh, and his um, acquaintance, although very brief, moves her profoundly. Uh, she writes her family a series of richly entertaining letters. Uh, and uh, then she herself falls desperately ill from a disease that was diagnosed as typhoid pneumonia. Um, after she returns home, uh, Alcott revises her letters into a book uh, called Hospital Sketches. And Hospital Sketches becomes her first big literary success. Uh, it catches the eye of the editor, who later asks her to write Little Women. And so we can uh, pretty confidently say that if it had not been for Louisa May Alcott's experience after the Battle of Fredericksburg, uh, Little Women never would have been written. And the entire face of, uh, of children's literature in America uh, would have been just dramatically uh, transformed. Um, Fredericksburg also uh, draws into the war Walt Whitman. Uh, Whitman, uh, like Alcott, uh, finds himself uh, at loose ends at the beginning of the war. Uh, he's published his third expanded edition of Leaves of Grass, and he ought to be enjoying a pinnacle of success uh, in his career. But um, many of the new poems are of a rather risque, erotic nature for the time, and the public is scandalized. And in fact, even one reviewer suggests that Walt commits suicide. So Walt is uh, uh, in an uncomfortable place. And he takes to spending his evenings um, at the beginning of the war at an underground beer hall in lower Manhattan uh, called Faf's, uh, where he's surrounded with uh, sort of you know, charming, self-destructive bohemians. Um, uh, but it's, for him, it's a downward spiral. And it's a time that he will later recall as uh, what he calls his quicksand years. But then, a couple of days after the Battle of Fredericksburg, uh, Walt is at home reading a newspaper and he sees a notice of uh, the casualties at Fredericksburg and he finds misspelled the name of his brother George, who was lieutenant in the Union Army. So Whitman drops everything and he travels south to the battlefield uh, in search of George and he finds him. But also there he finds a calling. Uh, instead of going back home, uh, he settles in Washington, DC, and he spends virtually the rest of the war uh, caring for the sick and wounded. The experience pulls Walt out of the uh, quicksand and it transforms him both as a poet and as a person. Uh, and he continues to revise Leaves of Grass. And after the war, he adds what is perhaps uh, his greatest poem, a tribute to the martyred Abraham Lincoln called When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed. 
Um, and Whitman himself uh, said uh, that Leaves of Grass would never have achieved its true form uh, if it had not been for his involvement in the war. So my third protagonist is um, a future Supreme Court Justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. Uh, Wendell also wrote poetry. In fact, he was the class poet of his class at Harvard. But uh, in 1862, when Fredericksburg takes place, he is known almost exclusively as the son of a great poet. Oliver Sr. is a polymath who is not only um, one of the great leading literati of America, but he's also um, a doctor and he's a, a professor of anatomy at the Harvard Medical School. And the, the younger Holmes is struggling hard to escape from his father's prodigious shadow. And their relationship, I think, can be best described as, uh, as, as really pretty tense. Um, Holmes Jr. joins the army with great enthusiasm, he's eager to help in the effort to destroy slavery. But Holmes Jr., or rather Holmes Sr., is apolitical and he's ambivalent about the war. He's not really sure that his son should go and he would be more than happy to keep the world precisely as it is. But slowly the attitudes of the two men begin to reverse. Uh, Holmes Jr. is wounded multiple times and he watches his friends being killed and maimed and he conceives an understandable hatred for the war and he wants out. But his father has become a passionate armchair patriot uh, who writes poems and gives speeches urging the North to fight to the last woman and child. And so my book shows the results of that conflict between father and son, that generational battle. And it also shows how uh, Wendell's experience at Fredericksburg has very long lasting and deep effects on his philosophy of law. So the fourth member of uh, the five at Fredericksburg is my only southerner, uh, and his name is John Pelham. Uh, he is uh, a major in Robert E. Lee's army. He's the leader of Jeb Stewart's horse artillery. And like Holmes, Pelham is in his last year of college when the war breaks out. He's a cadet at uh, West Point. And in fact, you see him in the photograph uh, in his cadet uniform. Uh, he is distinguished not in the classroom, but as an elegant horseman uh, uh, and a splendid boxer. Um, he um, tries to stay at West Point as long as he can. Even after Alabama, his home state secedes, he wants desperately to get his diploma, but eventually he has to leave without it. Uh, early in the war, he develops a preternatural skill for artillery tactics, and despite his extreme youth and his, uh, his boyish appearance, he's given his, uh, his own command, and he goes from battle to battle, uh, distinguishing himself and, uh, and bedeviling the Union forces and never losing a single cannon in battle. Uh, at Fredericksburg, uh, he becomes a hero. He holds off the uh, entire left flank of the Union Army uh, for more than an hour uh, and, uh, and, and makes it possible for Stonewall Jackson's troops to dig in and, and mount a successful defense against the advancing Union Army. And Pelham then seems to be on the verge of, um, of some real uh, fame. Uh, but then, um, uh, you know, other things happen. I won't spoil everything that happens in the book. Uh, for, for many people, uh, Pelham remains a sort of a tragic archetype of a Confederate hero. He's dashing, he's brave, but, uh, but sadly, he is very much on the wrong side of, uh, of the conflict and on the wrong side of history. Uh, the last of the quintet uh, that makes up the focus of the book is uh, the least well-remembered, and he's Arthur Fuller. 
Uh, Arthur Fuller is a Union Army chaplain who, um, uh, like Holmes and Alcott, uh, comes from an astonishing family. Uh, his father was a four-term congressman, a very close friend of John Quincy Adams, and, uh, and also Arthur's uh, older sister, um, uh, Margaret Fuller, is the most renowned female intellectual of uh, the first half of the 19th century in America. Uh, Arthur, however, has had a harder time in life. Uh, when he's a boy, he has an accident that leaves him blind in one eye. Uh, he grows up to become a respected Unitarian minister, but he remains physically frail. And he's never been able to lead the life of action and achievement that he, in his deepest um, heart, desires. And so in one final grasp at, at realizing his vanishing ideal of manhood, Fuller signs on to the army as an army chaplain, and he does what he can to preserve a space for your religious decency among his regiment, even in the midst of this horrible war. Uh, his ill health persists. On the eve of Fredericksburg, he receives a medical discharge, uh, but he's unable to leave the army in its time of dire need. And so as the regiments are marching into battle, he lays down his Bible and picks up a gun uh, with what turn out to be rather shattering consequences. Now, Arthur's chief contribution to American history turns out uh, not to arise from his actions, but rather from his DNA. Uh, one of his posthumous grandchildren, as some may know, is the uh, futurist inventor and architect Buckminster Fuller. So the, the book is, as uh, the Wall Street Journal put it, a group portrait. It's uh, a window on a catastrophic event from five extremely varied perspectives. It's about family. It's about people uh, seeking to reform and redeem and complete their lives. It's tragedy. It's rags to riches. It's rebirth, it's voyage and return, and uh, more than anything else, in the deepest sense, it's about America. So anyway, without further ado, I'd like to uh, bring in now the inimitable, the wonderful uh, Amy Cherry uh, for a bit of conversation. And uh, Amy, welcome. Hey, John, it's good to see you. Um, though I miss our time in the office when you would come by, we get to talk. But we will talk online now. Yes. I wanted to start with a question that's in some ways very general and also very specific. You grew up in California. Yes. Why were you interested in the Civil War? It seems not uh, appropriate to that state. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, at, uh, at one of Holmes's battles, there was a first California regiment, but none of them were from California. Oh. Uh, it was, and I don't, I don't even quite remember the whole story behind that. But, uh, but you know, it's it's funny, Amy, because I can hardly remember a time when I wasn't uh, interested in the in the Civil War. Um, my my parents um, had a, a nice little home library, and they had a big beautiful American Heritage Illustrated History of the Civil War, which I discovered and, and just started immersing myself in the maps and the, and the descriptions. And, uh, and for a while, sort of in late childhood, early adolescence, I would almost go to sleep replaying the tactics of various battles. Uh, and my dad also uh, worked at that time for, uh, for United Airlines. 
And, uh, and so, although we were West Coasters, uh, we could uh, manage to be bi-coastal a little bit without spending uh, a ton of money. Uh, and so I visited many of the, of the Civil War battlefields at that time. Uh, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, Manassas stands out in my mind as a, as a place that, that really sunk into my, uh, to my consciousness uh, during those times. Uh, and, and so, you know, it, it, as I say, it's hard for me to remember when I wasn't interested. And of course, um, my first two books um, do uh, connect with, if not with the uh, Civil War, but, but with the, the people that I'm, I'm writing about. Uh, Alcott, as I mentioned, of course, is a nurse in the Civil War. And, um, and also my second book, uh, as we both well know, uh, was about Margaret Fuller, who was uh, Arthur's, uh, as I mentioned, older sister. Uh, so this book really, it's a confluence of various passions that I've had at various times in my life. And it, it was just incredibly serendipitous that all of these stories that, that mean so much to me personally, um, you know, either intersected or came very close to intersecting at, at Fredericksburg. I'll start with some of the the characters, the people in the book. Sure. Like Alcott. Yeah. So was it hard to revisit her again? Or was there something you wanted to get deeper into her? I mean, obviously yeah. you get to talk more about one point yeah. in her life here. Yeah, boy, you know, I, I can't seem to get away from the Alcott family. You know, <laughs> with, you know, with Eden's Outcast and the annotated little women and, and now and now this. But um, I haven't really fought that hard to get away from them uh, because they are, um, there's such a kindness to the Alcotts and there's such a fierce dedication uh, among all of them to doing the right thing, even if it comes at a terrible cost uh, to them in, in, their, in their own lives. Um, and so when I read Louise's work, when I read Bronson's work, I, I just get this really deep sense of their desire to bear burdens and to offer a, you know, a kind of emotional health to, to the people that they're writing for. And that, that's always meant a lot to me. Uh, but, uh, but yes, revisiting, revisiting her rather was, uh, was a little bit hard because of course I'd written uh, kind of the same story before. Um, but there were things that I wanted to uh, to revisit and and to to bring back into into the public view, and and probably the big one uh, has to do with the the wounded soldier whom she becomes very attached to uh, in the in the uh, Union Army Hospital. Um, it's called the Union Hotel Hospital, actually, and that's John Surrey. And uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to revisit the Surrey story was that the first time I did it, I got it wrong, um, and everyone got it wrong. Uh, because Louisa in her diaries um, writes about John Surrey. She spells his name right sometimes, but then she misspells it other places. But she refers to him consistently as a 30-year-old Virginia blacksmith. And so we've always known that he existed, but kind of under false colors, because um, it turns out that a lot of that information was mistaken. And so if you were looking in the archives for a 30-year-old Virginia blacksmith who you know, received care at the Union Army Hospital, Hotel Hospital, you never would have you know, made the connection. Uh, and so it just so happened that I was going through a, a, a secondary work uh, in preparation for writing the book. Um, and I discovered just a, a, a two-line reference um, that, um, that 
really, really looked a lot the, oh my gosh, you know, this is the guy. And it actually quotes a letter that, uh, that the author said was written by a nurse about him. And so I jumped in my car and I drove to the war college at uh, Carla, Pennsylvania to see who is the real John Surrey. And, uh, and it turns out that John Surrey was not 30, and he was not from Virginia, he was 21 and he was from Pennsylvania. But I was able to find out from a letter in his file at the War College, what regiment he was in. And from that, I was able to trace various other facts about his family and so forth. And so in A Worse Place Than Hell, I'm finally able to tell the true story of John Surrey, this, this mystery figure in the life of Louisa May Alcott, who is, you know, had profound um, you know, influence on her, even though she knew him only for a very short time. Uh, and, and so it, it was, it was really, it, it was like rescuing him uh, from, from anonymity. Uh, and that, that act of retrieval for me was, um, was at the heart of this particular uh, revisiting of, of Louisa May Alcott. Well, I'm so glad you did find him finally. Um, the character who I found perhaps the most complicated and I shouldn't say confusing, but he kept changing, yeah. I think, is um, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. who, it's not just that he changes as time goes on, but he seems to change from moment to moment sometimes, or his ideas are in flux. And I, I assume part of the reason and you had such interest in him also is because you do have a law degree, which I am now shaming you by mentioning. <laughs> um, but that he also is one of, considered one of our great jurists. And so it was, um, I guess I thought maybe a somebody who was a great jurist would have, you know, I mean, he has strong ideas, but that he would have had come to them in a straight, more narrow manner. So I'd love you to talk more about him. Yeah, uh, Holmes, um, well, Holmes and Margaret Fuller are the two real geniuses um, about whom I've written. And, uh, and it's, it can be easy almost to fall into a trap when you're um, you know, hobnobbing literarily with, with these people and you start thinking, well, maybe I am on their level. You're not, you're nowhere near uh, someone like, like Margaret Fuller or, 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 or Wendell Holmes. Uh, Holmes, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, he was in some ways the most fun person to write in, in the book. Uh, because as we know, uh, narrative and drama thrive on conflict. And with Holmes, you've got this deep conflict with his father uh, that, uh, that, um, you know, that you know, verges into real rancor in the, in the surviving letters that, that Wendell writes home. You've also got this deep conflict over the nature of the universe. Holmes is, a, uh, unlike everyone else in the book, uh, Holmes is a deep religious skeptic. And, uh, and he's looking very hard in life for something that he can attach himself to and something that he can believe in. Uh, and uh, for a brief time, perhaps the army offers that and that fails him. He's wounded several times and he has just you know, horrific experiences watching his friends being killed and maimed. Uh, and, uh, and so he then turns to law after the war is over 
possibly, you know, I would argue, saying that at, le at last he's maybe he's finding a, a, a source of order in the universe, you know, something that makes sense. And what he discovers is the law doesn't make sense either. Uh, and you know, one of his most famous lines is that the life of the law is not logic, it's experience. And, and of course, the, the experience that he brings to the law is one of blood and suffering and this incredibly scarring war uh, that, that drives him in 1864 to the very limits of his sanity. And one of the things that he you know, ends up contemplating very deeply is the nature of duty. Uh, and his experiences at Fredericksburg are particularly um, relevant to, to that uh, inward query. Just how much do you owe your country? Just how much do you owe your society? How much do you owe a military unit and so forth? And, uh, and he comes to the conclusion that duty is not infinite, that, there's, uh, that there is finally a reasonable limit as to what can and should be asked of a human being. Uh, and so Holmes is, is a man um, it, who is really stretched to the limit of his endurance and his ability to comprehend. Uh, and uh, and you know, also, um, you know, he, you know, he both begins and ends the book. Um, and he ends it because he outlives all of the other main figures by a ridiculous amount of time, uh, by, by more than, than 40 years. Um, so he's, uh, he's irresistible. And, uh, and, and just, as I've, as I've said, a great, great deal of fun to explore. What do you see as his impact on the law and how it comes, came down to it, us? Yeah. Well, Holmes has, has many impacts on the law because, uh, well, for one thing, his tenure on the Supreme Court is extremely long. You know, he doesn't get to be a Supreme Court justice until he's 60, which is, you know, you know kind of old, but for, for, to be starting that job, but he remains on the court um, un, until uh, his early 90s. And so he has a very large window of opportunity to leave his impress upon the court. And of course, he is so, uh, so utterly brilliant. He's not the chief justice. A lot of people presume that he was, but he was, uh, in fact, uh, just a highly influential uh, associate justice, along with his very good friend, Louis D. Brandeis. Uh, and Holmes's impact on the law, I think, begins with uh, his understanding, um, acquired through you know, his experience in battle, that the world doesn't necessarily run on justice and equity and fairness. It runs on force. And he becomes a bit of a social Darwinian. And he starts to regard law as something that isn't necessarily trying to impose virtue on humankind, but is an institution that offers predictability in human affairs, uh, that, that tells you uh, kind of the limit you can go before you start getting sued and thrown in jail. Um, and he approaches the law from a, a standpoint of deep skepticism and almost cynicism at times. Uh, and so if you go to the story of Under, Oliver Wendell Holmes looking for the, the benevolent, kindly Yankee from Olympus, uh, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, this is a man who has both physical and emotional scars. Uh, and, and those scars do kind of... Um, you know, translate themselves into, um, in, into some of his uh, sort of, you know, power-based uh, theories of law. One of the people you have in this book, in some ways, you don't need to have put in, which is John Pelham. Yeah, yeah. And, but 
he's such a fascinating figure and he works so interestingly in uh, conjunction against the other people, but not just because he's a Southerner. Yeah. And I was curious when you came upon him and when you realized you wanted him in this book. Yeah, and you might be surprised by my answer because I in fact came upon John Pelham before I came upon anyone else in the book. I came upon John Pelham when I was 12 or 13 years old and I was reading uh, the second volume of Douglas Freeman's Lee's Lieutenants. And uh, there's a, a series of uh, full page photographs at the beginning of that volume. And I turned a page and I looked into the eyes of the doomed haunting John Pelham and something happened to me then and, and there. Uh, and, you know, my, my thoughts about him, you know, they were those of a, you know, 14, 13 year old boy and not particularly sophisticated, but, um, but over, over a, you know, a long period of time, I've come to regard him as, as one of the most tragic uh, figures of the war and one of the, the most underappreciated in terms of, of his military um, abilities. Uh, he is, um, he's, he's deeply tragic in that um, he is in one sense, the perfect man for his time. He has this incredible command of artillery tactics. Uh, he has the best artillery unit probably uh, on either side in, in the war. Uh, and, and yet what a horrible thing to have as your great talent in life the ability to turn other young men into you know heaps of blood and bone and to be doing it in defense of the horrible institution of of slavery and so his is is a story that i sometimes think doesn't get told often enough because it, it's a difficult story to tell uh, about the the person of um of ability and virtue and in some ways attractiveness uh, who is just so on the wrong side, um, and you know, and it's you know, it, and it's a particularly interesting question for us to grasp now in in the time of Black Lives Matter, and uh, and cancel culture, and and so on, um, and and it requires, I think, a little bit of flexibility of mind uh, to think one's way back into uh, into a historic moment when the when the values that we take as given uh, were very much up for grabs. Uh, and uh, and so uh, he, you know, I, I I suspect that people who read the book will be attracted, but in some ways re repelled by the sense that they're being attracted. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so um, so he's he's very poignant. Yeah. Um, the other question I had is about mixing in different parts of the book. Yeah. You have soldiers, you have nurses. Yeah. Most people would not write a book with those two groups in it. They'd go after the soldiers and do the war and continue with that and what happens to them, or they do the nurses and this kind of tending to the soldiers and what they felt and, and kind of the almost using them as part of the home front. Yeah. Both necessary. Yeah, there's, there's a very pronounced yin and yang to this book. Uh, that um, that you know speaks both to the martial sides of the conflict, but also to the compassionate sides of it. And so the last two sections of the book are are called uh, first two nurses and then two soldiers. Uh, and uh, it 
you know, I've, I've just been so thankful in the writing of this project that there are so many wonderful counterbalances in it. Um, yeah, and and one of the one of the major ones is uh, this this balance between violence and mercy, um, and um, and you know it's it's by no means the only one. You, you know you've got uh, Holmes the religious skeptic, you've got Fuller the religious enthusiast, you've got uh, Louisa May Alcott trying to you know, discover herself in a man's world. You've got Walt Whitman, the gay poet, who uh, you know has you know very very different but kind of complementary gender issues in this book. And so, um, and another thing about it that that, that about the book that uh, that I could not possibly have planned, but it's really so neat, uh, is that at the Battle of Fredericksburg, I so happen to have a major personage at every place, major place on the battlefield that I want to visit so that I'm able to tell the story of the battle uh, by at the same time narrating these personal stories uh, and without breaking the flow and, and, you know, and keeping up the, the, the military narrative while at the same time advancing the personal narrative. Yeah, and, and it is at one of those places that Arthur Fuller decides to jump right in. Um, it is in some ways one of the most unexpected things that happens in the book. Yeah. It's this minister, as you said, somewhat fragile, vulnerable, one eye uh, he can't see from. So, I mean, and if you're in war, you kind of want to be able to mm see widely, you want that panorama, you want as much as you can see around you. Yeah. And he's not really trained in fighting in any way or using guns. No, not at all. He hasn't fired a gun since he was a teenager and he's now 40 years old at the Battle of Fredericksburg. And, uh, and, and you know, his story at Fredericksburg uh, you know, really feeds into another of the, the balances in the book because uh, we also have, you know, as a hero at Fredericksburg, John Pelham, who is this guy who is so completely in command on the battlefield, uh, who probably would rather be in battle than doing almost anything else except flirting with, with uh, young women, which he was also pretty accomplished at, uh, one, one discovers. But, but you have Pelham, this absolute, you know, um, paragon of military competency, and Arthur Fuller, who has really nothing on his side except for a desire to do something for his country. Um, and, um, and in fact, um, some of the last words that he speaks uh, are precisely those. Uh, he um, he uh, goes into battle uh, with uh, a regiment not his own because um, they would have recognized him and sent him back um, in all likelihood. But he goes into battle with another Massachusetts regiment and, uh, uh, and uh, the captain of that regiment uh, uh, you know, feels a, a tug at his sleeve apparently practically. And, and, and it's, it's this one-eyed chaplain who says, sir, I must do something for my country. What shall I do? And, um, and it's, you know, talk about poignant moments. Um, it's, it's, it's a man utterly ill-equipped for the situation, but who feels that he can be no place else. And uh, some of the attendees may be familiar with the, um, with the great Hemingway short story, uh, The Short Happy Life of Francis Macomber. Uh, and uh, Arthur, Fuller's, Arthur, Arthur Fuller's last moments are, um, are kind of analogous uh, to, to that story. Um, and I had it very much in my mind when I was writing his, uh, his final scenes. 
That's interesting. Taking a literary piece and using it as a kind of a way to reflect on. Yeah, well, you know, one of the sort of lonely battles that I fight, Amy, is to convince people that biography is a literary form, you know, that it's not just about they did this, they did that, no. uh, that uh, that there are things get, that can be done with, um, you know, you know, with almost novelistic tropes and with alliteration and assonance and uh, all, all of the tools that lie at the disposal of the poet of the novelist are, I think, also fair game for the biographer as long as we don't fib. And uh, of course, yeah. 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 And that's why your books are always so amazing and bring the reader so deeply into them. Yeah, thank you. Um, I have, I guess, one more question perhaps that I want to ask, and it is a more, It's a question just about our obsession with the Civil War mm. and also the fact that we don't ever seem to be able to leave it behind, the war, its effects, its impact. Mm -hmm. I just wanted you to reflect on that and especially somebody who grew up with this fascination with the war and how it's perhaps changed now, I'm sure has changed now, uh, what you see in it and, mm -hmm. and what you think of it, but also seeing people around you. I mean, I feel like we are constantly talking about the Civil War in some ways. Well, I, I think that it's a good thing uh, that the major events of our national life are things that we can't put to rest and can't put behind us. Um, because there are, there are a lot of um, you know, very brave and honorable people uh, who deserve to be kept alive, if only in our memories. Um, but it goes deeper than that because um, you know, we never get to a place in, in our history where everything is settled and where everything is just and everything is good. And, uh, and it's very important for us to, um, to maintain you know, contact uh, with these, these earlier times of, of strife and difficulty. And of course, uh, the, the, you know, the terrible events of, of January 6th uh, reminded us of the fragility of democracy uh, in a way that we may not have been aware of it since the Civil War, um, though we had some tough times uh, at, other, at other points as well. Um, so, you know, my, you know, my, my thought about that is that, um, we need to keep bringing it back. Um, and, and sometimes the ways in which we bring it back are going to be painful, um, because, um, because war is about pain, but we're never going to understand American justice. We're never going to understand American injustice, uh, if we don't understand the American civil war. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I am now going to go to the questions from people who are uh, been watching and now give them a chance to ask questions. So if you give me a, a second, I will start reading them. Uh, here, here's a pretty straightforward question that I know you'll be able to handle. Uh, John, did you visit Fredericksburg during your writing of the book? Oh, I certainly did. I visited it several times. Um, Fredericksburg as, as a battlefield um, has um, you know, suffered from modernity uh, in that 
you know, even when the time the bat at the time that the battle was fought, it was fought really just kind of on the outskirts of of, the, of a growing town, and the town has continued to grow since then. Uh, so there are small areas of Fredericksburg that have been uh, preserved. Uh, the stone wall, uh, for instance, although much of that wall is now a replica. Uh, but you go to the site where uh, where Pelham uh, you know fired his his cannon at the advancing Union troops, and you know there's a drugstore there, um, and uh, and and so you don't really get the full feel of it, and yet nevertheless you can still walk the streets, and you can still understand the distances involved. And, uh, and in fact, on one of the trips that I took there, I went deliberately on the anniversary of the battle. Uh, December 13th uh, was the day of, of the major fighting at, at Fredericksburg. And uh, I went there on the anniversary so that I could see the angle of the sun and to ask myself, well, when John Surrey was charging the, the, the stone wall, was he squinting into a sunset or, or what, what was it like? Um, I went to Antietam also several times and, uh, and to find out how, uh, how long it would have taken the Union troops to cross Burnside's Bridge. I, I took a stopwatch along and I ran it myself to, you know, to, get a, to get a sense of that. I think it's tremendously important uh, whenever possible uh, for a historian and a biographer to, uh, to, to visit the actual place um, or places. And, and I must say that I adore Fredericksburg. It's a it's a beautiful city, uh, and uh, and and one that that has you know has you know, received me very kindly, and as as certainly did the people at the military park there. Uh, Frank O'Reilly uh, comes to mind. John Hennessy, uh, wonderful wonderful people. Um, so so yes, I did spend some time. Time for a follow up question. Um, somebody was wondering where uh, Fredericksburg ranks among. <laughs> Horrific Civil War battles. Wow, uh, um, especially for the North. Yeah, how how do you measure horror? Um, it is not the um, the absolute bloodiest um, battle of the of the Civil War. The the bloodiest one day engagement takes place at Antietam, uh, which is about three months before uh, Fredericksburg, and also gets a lot of attention in my book. Um, but um, but. Fredericksburg is especially tragic in that so much of it was unnecessary. Uh, that um, that you know, the battle was as horrible as it was uh, because it was planned and executed by uh, a Union Army commander, Ambrose Burnside, who was an outstanding division commander, uh, but was just out of his depth uh, when it came to commanding an entire army. Uh, and. Uh, uh, and so his, um, his weaknesses were very much on display. And uh, in fact, John Surrey, um, the, uh, Louise's, um, Louise May Alcott's patient at Union Hotel Hospital was part of the last charge up, um, up the hill uh, toward the, the infamous stone wall. The sun was setting, uh, it was utterly futile. There was no, no possibility of it succeeding. There was no reason to send these men uh, into, you know, essentially on a conveyor belt into the wood chipper. Um, and, and so one weeps over Fredericksburg, yes, because of the, the, the horrible number of casualties, but also uh, just the futility and the, the, the unnecessity of, of so much of the bloodshed. A different question. There seems to be so much hidden history that has come to light since the New York Times brought the 1619 project to light for many people. Mm. 
During your lifelong study of the Civil War, did your reading reveal any of the hidden information? Do you have favorite narrative nonfiction books on the Civil War? Okay, so I, I have to, um, to, to resist the, uh, uh, the, the, the very kind assertion that, that this has been a lifelong pursuit for me. It's been a lifelong <laughs> interest, but, but, but I'm, a, I'm an English professor. Uh, and so this is really my first foray in print, except for an article or two, uh, into, uh, into the Civil War. And, uh, and when you're writing a biography, uh, it, it's very easy to, to succumb to a bit of tunnel vision. Uh, because you want to get the thing done. You want to tell the stories that are pertinent to, um, uh, to, to, to the project, uh, somewhat narrowly defined. Uh, and, and so, uh, unfortunately, I haven't really done a lot of delving into um, information germane to the, the 1619 project and, and so forth, uh, but which I very much respect and admire uh, from a distance. Um, and of course, one of the things that's also difficult is that um, the, the amount of um, historical record you know, depends on who was writing it down and from what perspective. And, uh, and as, a, as a good, for instance, uh, John Pelham uh, brings with him uh, to the front uh, a pair of, uh, of enslaved men from, from his family's um, estate um, known only as Willis and Newton. And I would love to know a lot more about Willis and Newton. Uh, and, and in fact, um, a friend of mine and I are, are we're working on a screen adaptation of, of the book. Uh, in, in which uh, Willis and Newton became, become much more important characters and were able to speculate about, uh, about what their experiences might have been. But, uh, but, um, but factually, unfortunately, there, there's not that much. And Fredericksburg, by the way, also was uh, one of the last major battles fought before the Union Army integrated. And so as, as dearly as I would have loved to uh, have included a major African-American story in the book, uh, there simply was not one uh, that, that I could find uh, that, that could be told. Uh, so apologies about that. Um, I'm just thinking, and, and I mean, what's been great is that we are starting to find more and more stories, but it's going to take a long time before we can get our heads around them. And people are just digging deeply and trying to figure it out. It's yeah. It's and an that, ongoing process. Yeah, and that new interest is just wonderful. It's exciting. Uh, I think it's it's you know it's it's interesting uh, people in history uh, who hadn't necessarily thought about history before. Uh, it's a sort of democratization of uh, of our national experience, and um, and you know it's it's an exciting time you know in in which to be engaging in in research and and historical study. And do you, um, the last part of the question was, do you have any narrative nonfiction Civil War history that's your favorite? Oh boy, uh, I could recommend other books on Fredericksburg and probably eat into my own sales. So I don't know if I would do that. But, um, but um, you know, as far as, as, uh, as sort of general Civil War historians go, and I'm speaking now really more as a literary stylist than as a, uh, as a historian, um, and I feel much more comfortable as the literary stylist. Uh, I, my greatest admiration is for the, the work of Bruce Catton, you know, which you know, much of which was, was written you know, quite some time ago, 50, 60 plus years ago. 
Uh, but uh, but he has a grasp of storytelling and of character uh, that is unusual, I think, for a historian. Um, and uh, and his his books are also exceptionally novelistic um, you know, for you know, for their time. And uh, and and so you know, he was kind of an inspiration for me uh, when I was when I was working on uh, um, on. Um, uh, a worse place than hell. Uh, as as to other recommendations, I could scrounge around and find them, but uh, but but at the moment, I'm not doing well remembering a few titles. So. That's all right. Um, can you speak more to your understanding of the honor and duty presented in the battle? In most accounts, the concepts were on full display at Fredericksburg. How did your five protagonists offer differ in their approach to honor and duty? Okay. Okay. That's a big question. Maybe you take a little part. Oh, that's that's fantastic. That's that's a that's a wonderful question. I, I thank whoever it was who who asked it. Uh, it's it's beyond doubt that every single one of my five uh, was highly motivated by one sense of duty or another. Uh, with with Whitman, it's not particularly militaristic. You know, it's a very sort of humanist duty. Uh, he goes to the battlefield, as I mentioned at the top, to look for his brother George. And uh, and while he's there, uh, he sees the face of, of a dead soldier uh, that moves him profoundly. And he refers to him in his journals as, as my dead Christ. And he has this kind of, you know, on the spot, I think, conversion experience uh, that, that tells him that he has to uh, do work of mercy and kindness and compassion for the rest of the war. And so his duty um, is, is kind of apart from, from military duty, but is nevertheless very profound. Uh, as far as Louisa May Alcott is concerned, of course, she is a member of the army as a, as a, as a nurse. And in fact, uh, it's interesting, if you go to her gravesite in Concord, Massachusetts at the Sleepy Hollow Cemetery, uh, the only indicator at her gravesite that she did anything worth remembering uh, during her lifetime uh, is, the, uh, is the little uh, star medallion um, that, that is by her grave indicating that she was a veteran of the war. Um, and uh, you know, uh, duty as far as Fuller and Pelham um, are concerned, I think goes without saying, and I think I may have covered it already. Uh, the most interesting one is Holmes. Uh, and the reason that Holmes's story of duty at Fredericksburg is interesting, and now I'm really gonna give away one of the spoilers, oh no, uh, which is that uh, he actually does not take place in the battle. Uh, he is uh, suffering from a horrible, um, uh, potentially fatal case of dysentery, and he cannot go into battle uh, with his uh, with his compatriots, and uh, and he, you know, he tries to struggle out of his bed. He tries to, but he absolutely simply physically cannot. Uh, and his regiment sustains uh, one of the worst levels of casualties at the battle. Now, Holmes is someone whose honor and courage are beyond question and reproach. He's wounded at Ball's Bluff. He's wounded at Antietam. Uh, he's wounded at Chancellorsville. Um, he, um, you know, there's, there's no doubt that he's a man of tremendous courage. Uh, and yet, um, you know, um, Herman Melville, when he was writing Civil War poetry instead of a, a novel for a change, uh, wrote in a poem called Shiloh, what uh, like a bullet can undeceive. And Holmes was undeceived by three bullets uh, at three different, actually four, he was wounded twice at, Bell, at Ball's Bluff. Um, and, and he gets to 1864, 
about a year and a half after Fredericksburg. Every friend that, that he went into the, 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 the war with has been either killed or, or, or seriously wounded. Uh, and, and he you know, basically writes home to his parents. We don't have the letter, but we have their, um, uh, well, actually we have his letter. We don't have the response. Uh, and, and he basically says to his parents, look, if I keep doing this, I am literally going to go insane. Um, the, the strain on my body and on my mind is simply too strong for me to continue beyond this campaign and I'll be leaving the army. And his father has a fit because his father, as I mentioned, is writing all of these poems and giving all these speeches, no more blood, we must fight. And, um, and, and Holmes Jr. just finally, in spite of country, in spite of family, uh, you know, finally has to put it away. Uh, in the summer of 1864, uh, and uh, and it's it's a it's a tremendously difficult decision for him for obvious reasons, um, but um, but it, but his you know his sense of honor and duty to the army while he was in the army uh, is uh, is is beyond question. I have a question which I know the answer to, but. <laughs> which I think is one of the intriguing little things that comes up in the book. Did any of these five characters interact with each other while in Fredericksburg? You know, not in Fredericksburg precisely, but a little bit, a few weeks before Fredericksburg, uh, Wendell Holmes uh, and his, uh, his friend Henry Abbott come back from uh, Massachusetts where they've both been uh, recovering, uh, Holmes from his wound at Antietam and Abbott from uh, a severe illness. And uh, when they arrive in, um, in Virginia, uh, Holmes entrusts his suitcase uh, to, believe it or not, Chaplain Arthur Fuller, and so they connect at that moment. And um, and uh, Holmes's father, Oliver Senior, uh, was a classmate of uh, of Margaret Fuller, Arthur's uh, older sister, uh, and so they have this very brief interaction, which doesn't go particularly well, apparently. Um, but um, but uh, you know, all of the Massachusetts people. Um, you know, fell into each other's orbits at one time or another. And, uh, and Alcott gets to meet Whitman at a later phase in life. Um, but, uh, but these are stories that are really kind of, they're, they're kind of ships that pass in the night, most of them. You know, you come close to intersections, but, um, but they're, they turn out to be relatively few. Um, there are a couple of questions on John Pelham and, um, and also questions about Confederate statues. And I thought I'd bring them together considering there is a statue of John Pelham. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah, uh, well, I've actually been to uh, John Pelham's gravesite in, uh, in Alabama. And there is a, uh, a statue of him standing on, on top of a, a pedestal. And I don't think it really looks very much like him. Um, but, um, but, but anyhow, uh, and so what, what actually is the, the question? Uh, well, there's about. questions about um, tearing down of Confederate statues and, and should it be done, should it not be done? And there's also questions about uh, John Pelham and what makes him stand out from other of the uh, Confederate forces at yeah. Fredericksburg. 
Okay, yeah, as far as the statues go, uh, I tend to be a little bit more of two minds than, than most of the people I associate with. And the reason that I do, I think probably goes back to my training as a lawyer because I'm a real believer in the freedom of political speech. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's my sense as a sort of capital L 19th century version liberal uh, that when there's speech that you disagree with, you fight speech with more speech. Uh, you don't shut it down. You don't cancel it on, on the other side. Um, I, I understand, though, uh, how, how painful and difficult uh, you know, that kind of interaction with, with history can be. Uh, and so I haven't, you know, um, you know really I haven't taken a, a, you know, a very you know, definitive position on, on that issue. Uh, and I do think that it's something for local communities to figure out. And, uh, and, and also, once again, I think that you fight speech with speech. If there's something that you disagree with, uh, you, you, know, you protest, you put up your own statue. Uh, there's a lot that can be done uh, that doesn't reduce the range of, of opinions being expressed. So, so that's kind of how I look at it as you know, kind of a constitutional law guy. I think this is probably the last question. Um, how'd you come up with the title? Well, you know, I cheat a little bit on the title because the title actually doesn't refer to, um, to the Battle of Fredericksburg. It refer refers to Abraham Lincoln's state of mind after uh, the Battle of Fredericksburg. Um, Lincoln, uh, after Fredericksburg, uh, finds himself in a very tight spot because he is less than three weeks away from uh, issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. He desperately wanted for there to be a military victory that he could hang his hat on um, uh, in, in order to put some extra oomph behind the, the proclamation. And here he gets this disaster at Fredericksburg. And, uh, and three of his major uh, cabinet figures, his Secretary of War, his Secretary of State, his Secretary of the Treasury, all tender their resignations. Uh, and so Lincoln uh, you know, is, is you know, you know, it's a moment on the brink for him. He's observing possibly the meltdown of his entire administration. And so he says to a friend, if there is a worse place than hell, I'm in it. So that's where the, the title of the book comes from. <laughs>